All right, man. Welcome to episode 161 of Crow Triple Seven Radio. Uh, Jason Lingren is with me, and Phoenix Aurelius is back. Um, it's an interesting episode, but we literally had to clip part of our one out and move it over into our two to avoid being censored, and it has directly to do with blood and royalty and some other things, the consumption of human blood, things that almost certainly will get us censored in hour one. I apologize for that, but it is what it is, and that's why we have an hour two. But we cover a number of things in hour one, and the sky clock comes up again and again because it's a thing that we've all been challenging and trying to figure out and trying to show that things are jacked up with our calendar and equinoxes and solstices. So part of this episode will be a real challenge to see if folks who are flat earth people or globe people can meet in the middle and share ideas and build a bridge. Because after all, we're all after the same thing. We just want to figure out what's real in this place we exist. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lindgren and Phoenix Aurelius for episode 161. And by the way, hour two is heavily about spagyrics. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 161. I have Jason Lingren with me, and we will be talking to the returning Phoenix Aurelius today. A lot of people have been waiting. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning, and it's a fine good morning. So how goes it? I don't think I meant I know I don't have anything. I haven't been out anywhere. I know we're doing a show tonight, but we'll probably hold that over for next week. You got anything? Nope. Let's get right in with Phoenix. Yeah, let's maximize it out. Uh, Welcome, Phoenix. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, guys. Hey, it was our privilege. Uh, The last episode we did, a lot of people got interested uh, in what I call natural science or science within the scope of nature. Um, We'll be talking primarily about spagyrics today. I suppose we may veer into things like calendars and alchemy in general. Um, Just so people remember, spagyrics is the alchemy of the plant kingdom. There are basically three types of alchemy that are usually cited for most people, although this is a, a wide-ranging topic that gets much more in-depth than I can possibly lay down. Um, you'll have the mineral kingdom, and then you'll have um, the animal kingdom. And there's a greater alchemy, I suppose. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Phoenix. Spagyric is lesser alchemy. Is that correct? Uh, I would say that you're wrong, yeah, actually. Um it's actually a bit of a misunderstanding in the way that a lot of modern authors have written about spagyria that they think that spagyria is limited to just the vegetable kingdom and the lesser works, which isn't true. It's just that most people don't have enough skill to take their work into the mineral kingdom and to be able to make uh, items of medicinal virtue. So it's actually just a misconception. Um, Spagyria does work with minerals. It does work with metals and it does work with animal products in a way of making medicinal virtue. And realistically, I would say that alchemy and spagyria are actually the same thing. If there is a differentiation It's that spagyria is alchemy specifically performed to create remedies of medicinal virtue, whereas alchemy can be initiatic. It could also be industrial. It could also be self-serving. There could be a lot of different, could be psychological. So alchemy is more of a pattern uh, at broad that could be used for a lot of different things. And spagyria is specifically the medicinal application of alchemy. So when I read that, and it was, I don't know, maybe six months ago, I had a, I took issue with it as well, um, which is why I asked you to correct me if I needed it, for the simple reason that when I logically thought about it, um, all things in our world can be thought about with three philosophical principles, and that's basically at the root of most of this, is it not? Well, I mean, you know, before the term spagyric, even like up until the scientific revolution, anybody who practiced alchemy was just called a philosopher, because you had to know 
astronomy. You had to know music. You had to know physics, uh, you know, or what they just called physics at the time. And then you had to be able to understand or rationalize about the world and all of the different things. You had to know mythology. Like basically what we would now consider to be a Renaissance person, that was the minimum requirement at one point to become an alchemist or to be a philosopher. And so many of the great philosophers that we still refer back to, you know, that's just kind of the way that they would refer to their own art is the art of philosophy. Well, that, you know, I'll point people in a direction. Everyone's always asking for source material. Um, what Phoenix just mentioned about philosophers is covered pretty well in a book by Marcus Aurelius, The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. And so we are told that Marcus Aurelius was a Caesar, but when you read his writing, it almost feels like he's a Buddhist monk. It feels yeah. so far from what you've been told a Caesar or a supposed ruler of Rome, whatever that period of time actually was. But in that text, uh, in the mind of Marcus Aurelius, it is the highest calling. Um, he, he basically says, if I could have been whatever I want, I would have been the best thing you can be, which is a philosopher, but unfortunately I've got to be a Caesar. But anyhow, Let's catch yeah. people up with what's happened, uh, Phoenix, since the last time the show. Why don't you catch people up on where you're at now and all the improvements you've made? Oh, wow. Wow. That has been like moving at light speed. So, for, And that's actually, in particular, that's due to the Crow 777 listeners and to you guys having me on the show. So first of all, I just want to send a huge thanks to everybody who flooded my website, placed orders, participated in my research programs. It's gotten so full that I've actually even had to shut the research programs down temporarily because we've hit max capacity. So that's really cool. Also, I have so many research clients now that we are able to dial in the way that we take an intake form now to be able to save people months and months and months of research because I have so much data. I'm now realizing that so many of people's issues actually come down to Epstein-Barr virus that over 90% of people actually have. There are six different groups, four different intensities of it. And now that we're realizing that this could be the actual source of so many people's immune system, endocrine system, and nervous system issues, um, since we've been working on that and, and testing with that, we are getting a much higher response out of all of our research clients. So I've kind of put things on hold there. And uh, in a, just a couple of weeks to a couple of months, we're going to have this whole new process that will tell you specifically what your intrinsic data field tells you is going on with your body and whether any of my services or products will be helpful and if so which ones so that's the first thing like we've dialed things in immensely in the intrinsic data field research the other thing is that um, we moved into our new facility now and uh, i've got immersion study programs so people can come and stay with me for three days or seven days at a time and learn just about any kind of uh, spagyric curriculum that they want. I offer a couple of ideas and some packages on my website, but if you say, hey, really, here's what I want to do, and you throw it at me, as long as I feel comfortable teaching it and have the labware for it, then we'll just go ahead and have you over and do it. Uh, This year, uh, September dates are already sold out, but I do have some dates and May dates are already sold out, in fact. I have an apprentice that's going to be coming here in just a couple of days in order to finish out the May one, but I do have some available for July, and then we'll be opening up our 2020 calendar here soon. All right, man. Uh, Before we move on, why don't you go ahead and get into the first hour where, where people can make contact with you if they so desire. Oh, yeah, by all means. Yeah, so for those who haven't visited, you can always visit www.phoenixaurelius, that's spelled P-H-O-E-N-I-X, 
A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S dot org. So phoenixaurelius.org. And from there, you'll be able to see that I have some uh, wellness research programs, some immersion study things, some IDF amulets. IDF stands for intrinsic data field. You'll be able to just kind of navigate the website relatively easily from that homepage. Um, and if you're interested in my spagyrics in particular, just hover over the spagyric wellness tab and then scroll down to uh, the tab that says spagyric apothecary. Right. And just for everyone listening, um, I don't know, three times now, I think you've sent me big boxes of things I've ordered and the quality is bar none the best I've ever seen. Um, e even the little extra you threw in for me, the gifts of the Magi, just such a uh, such a high quality, interesting, I guess call, call it a product that doesn't feel right to call it a product. But yeah. But anyhow, um, you want to talk a little bit about the calendar or one thing when I do episodes like this, we're not writing down bullet points or research for this because we don't want to steer the conversation and end up missing something that you might bring to the table. So uh, where would you like to go? You want to start with the calendar? Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about that. Yeah, that was that was a really fascinating chat that we had before we went live. So let's just uh, bring the, the listeners in on that. Okay, so basically, as most followers know, um, a long time ago, I began to point out that the equinoxes were incorrectly dealt with in our world. They were calling out a day um, saying the equinox will happen this day. And in fact, that's not true. And as myself and many members of the Crow777radio.com forum began looking at it, we started to realize that only is it not only is it not true, it's wholly dependent on geography. It's a bit like like someone saying in New York, um, the sun's rising now, so this is the time the sun rises for everyone in the world. Um, that's a one-to-one -one allegory. It's just not true. Well, one of the things that was discovered early on is that when the, the media called out a day uh, on the vernal equinox, the true equinox, what we call true equinox, which is equal night and day, um, in this part of the world, the United States, was usually a around three days earlier. If you went a little further south in the United States, it was a day later, a little further south a day later. The exact opposite uh, of that is true at the fall equinox, where it will be preceding the date they announced the equinox. But during all this time, we had all assumed that the solstices were written in stone. After all, it's marking the highest and the lowest extents of the sun, the summer solstice being June 21 and the winter solstice being December 21, the lowest extent of the sun. And we have people right now building meridiana or using other methods like a meridiana to track when it actually happens. And we have reason to believe that maybe June 21 uh, for this part of the United States on the eastern seaboard is not correct. And it may be off by a couple, two, three days. So anyhow, there's the backstory. But what you and I were talking about, Phoenix, is when we start to wrestle with why is our calendar so jacked up? Um, one of the apparent things we can work out is that when doing spagyrics, um, everything is geared to the sky clock, is it not? Yeah, in, in spagyria it is. So it really doesn't matter what the date is because we're just looking at the stars. Right. So one of the ideas was that if you were following the standard Gregorian calendar, thinking that it was an equinox day, um, you could not get max potency um, as we're handed from the oldest things we can know about alchemy and spagyrics if you're off by even an hour. But if you're off by days, um, and I don't know, is the right word exaltation here? Um, to, to get max potency, you yeah. need to be in tune with the cycle of the sun. Right. So, yeah, well, see, like, let me let me tell 
tell you a little bitty here about my experience this year here in the lab. March, it was like uh, March 15th, okay? I decided to run a little thing for the biodynamic community through an IDF test to see when astronomical Easter was because we had showed last year that uh, on all of the, the days of the Christian feasts that are primarily celebrated in the public eye, those are still the very best days, the, especially the eve thereof. So like Christmas Eve, for instance, or uh, the eve before Easter, all of these things, uh, even Shrove Tuesday, they were excellent times to apply the biodynamic preparations to the soil. And they happen to fall also on like the Feast of the Assumption and other things. So you know, my thing wasn't like, oh, wow, that validates Christianity. My thing was, okay, Christianity actually took all of these uh, saints and took the inspirations from them from either pagan deities or other gods and then just made them a saint of, you know, said quality instead of a god of said quality. And so it got me thinking, especially because of uh, astrotheology, which is the concept that the gods actually were... Uh, their personalities were based largely on watching series of rotations of the heavens and being able to animate the or personify the movements of the stars in order to create elaborate mythology. Okay, so I started thinking about all of this and putting everything together, and we we ran this test for the biodynamic community. Well, they came back uh, with the results, or we came back with the results and sent it off to them. And said, well, what do you think about this? I looked at the results. The results said that Easter of this year of 2019 would have been on like March 20th. Now, we all know that it was actually, you know, uh, on the calendar this year, like April 20 something or another. And so they said, no, 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 no. You, you're like an entire month off. We're asking you, is this, you know, Vatican Easter or Orthodox Easter? So which date in April? And I said, well, according to IDF, you asked me for true Easter and I asked for true Easter this year and true Easter is actually going to be like on March 20th. And they said, well, what, what the hell does that mean? And I said, I don't know. Let me go ahead and do some research. So I started researching it. And if you take a look into how Easter or Ostara or any of these other dates that are actually really important. Okay. Now these are the Easter isn't a fixed date, but it does have fixed astronomies. And what that means is that by definition, Easter is supposed to be the first Sunday following the first full moon after the spring equinox. Well, the spring equinox was like on March 22nd or something. Um, I'd have to look at the date. So if it, March 22nd was the equinox. Then we also had, or the yeah spring equinox, and then we had the full moon just a few hours later this year. And I've got all this data somewhere. I don't have it pulled up right in front of me, but it was just a few hours later. And then that following Sunday, which had been the day after all of that happened, because I think the... The equinox happened on a Saturday today. The day after that, so you know, the 23rd or something, must have been actual Easter. And they, I looked at that and I found out, you know, okay, the moons that the Vatican acknowledges are an entire. They're called ecclesiastic moons. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They acknowledge that the full moon actually happens before it actually happens. I, I can actually address some of this. Um, at some point, I'm hoping to do episodes, and it is so complicated. But at this point, I feel confident in saying so many people comment, why is our calendar so jacked up? Well, it's because of Easter. Because what the Vatican did was they wanted to be able to make tables um, that projected out what day Easter would be so they could make the dictate 
over the whole world that they were in control of from a spiritual standpoint. This is the day we will celebrate Easter. Um, and as you look at the rundown of how all these calendars and how they switch from Julian to Gregorian, which was barely a correction of any kind, it's almost unmeasurable, the correction between the two, but it's critical what you're pointing out here, because as you mentioned, uh, you're going to have a vernal equinox, which by the way, is being treated in the same way Easter is, which isn't correct. Like if you're on one side or one part of the world and another, um, Easter day is not going to happen simultaneously. It's just the way it is. So what they're saying is the first full moon after the spring equinox is Easter, but they pull it to the nearest day of the sun or Sunday. But I think we can hang firmly uh, the whole jacking up of the calendar on the Vatican's efforts to pin down Easter on a single day. Um, and so I think also, uh, if I remember back correctly, I think it was the 17th that Equinox was here in Rhode Island for the vernal Equinox uh, this year. But I'd have to look. It was either 17th or the 19th. It preceded the day that was either the 20 20, 20th or 21st that they were announcing. Yeah. See, now... As I understand it, the the whole Gregorian calendar and the Julian calendar, basically, this was really weird because, you know, Gregorians wanted to, as I understand, alter the lunar cycle so that they could calculate the date for Easter like you were just talking about. And then they also noticed that there was some really minor discrepancy that the Julian calendar had by like, you know, 0.000 or 75 or something like that days. So what they did was that every so often, every, you know, 100 years or whatever, there'd be like 10 days of dif difference or drifting. And so what they did was they literally just like did away with 11 days. It was in 1582, I think October 4th, that they did away with the Julian calendar. And it was still known as October 4th, 1582. But then it all of a sudden became October 15th, 1582, the next day. <laughs> right. And, and and during that, I mean, we lose like 11 days or something like that, isn't it? Count the ways as they do the switchover. They yeah. just basically chuck out 11 days. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this brings us around to the whole Julian calendar thing. So to refresh people's memory, when we first got going on the Equinox thing and the threads at crow777radio.com, we were going to the Naval Observatory's date and time information to simply look up sunsets and sunrise, at which point along the way, they shut the site down and boot us all out. And it's down for, I forget, a week or two before it comes back up. But during the course of that, we began to realize that the Naval Observatory with their cesium clock helping to keep world time, we we're told, is still tracking Julian time. So why would that be? If we're now all using the Gregorian calendar, why is the Naval Observatory still tracking Julian? And Phoenix and I began to talk about this, pointing out, as we have so many times, if you take the word September, that's sept. Why is it the nine month, ninth month that should be the seventh or oct? October should be the eighth month, not, you know, all the way up to December. That should be 10, not 12. So can you address that a little bit? Because that goes all the way back to what we assume and call Julian's, but it also drags us back to a supposed calendar that had only 10 months that we don't know a heck of a lot about, I think. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes that's known as like the first Julian or uh, pre-Julian calendar. So Julius Caesar, 46 BC, he created the Roman calendar, which we now know as the Julian calendar, and it took effect right on 1st January, 45 BC. 
Do we know, did Julius Caesar himself literally do this, or did he put it into effect? Did he have people come up with it for him? It was proposed by him because, of course, he couldn't just do it. He, he's an emperor. Uh, it would have to be approved by the Senate and so on and so forth as per Roman law. So it was proposed by him, but it was passed. And that's what I'm saying. It took effect on 1 January 45 BC by edict. But who would have actually come up with the system itself? Do we have any idea about that? Oh, yeah, we do. In fact, okay, so here's where the history of the Julian calendar actually came from, was that all of the astronomers of Rome were put together to take the remaining information that we had in in all of the libraries across the Roman Empire to be able to compile the most accurate calendar that reflected the calendar of the ancient Egyptians, because the ancient Egyptians had the most accurate sky clock that, besides possibly the Mayans and a few other cultures, that we still know of today. So that's what the first Julian calendar was decided to do, or the pre-Julian calendar. And apparently that was used for some short period of time in the Roman Empire, um, just because it was like commonly agreed upon that that was like the best way of using it. But at this time, the reason why the Julian calendar needed, or the Roman calendar in 45 BC, needed to be created in the first place was because there were so many different types of calendrical systems being used throughout the Roman Empire that there wasn't one agreed upon form. The Hebrews would use their type of calendar, which is uh, obviously a lunar calendar, you know, that we still have access, a lunar solar calendar that we have access to today. And then other areas of the empire would, like the, the former Persian areas of the empire would be, you know, using a different type of, of uh, what we would now consider to be like Vedic astrology, essentially and so on and so forth in order to determine the position of the planets and all these things and, and the position of the dates and the names of them. And so it became very confusing. As a result, like Rome did, if you can create unification or a system of unification or make it a necessity that unification happens, then you have more control and more unity over the empire. And so this was like politically why Julius Augustus Caesar was looking to put this into effect in the first place. But during the years before it became an edict, before it actually like passed and became law, there was this pre-Julian calendar that was apparently only, like we were talking about, a 10-month calendar. And it measured 10 solar months and 13 lunar months in congruency in accordance with apparently some data that was like Egyptian or reformed Egyptian of some sort. You know, meaning that they had either accounted for, you know, whatever Ptolemaic model of the Earth that they had or, you know, whatever at the time. Still, that being said, when Julius Caesar officially got a hold of that calendar, he put two months in there and named them after himself. The month of July, after Julius, and the month of August, after his middle name, Augustus. And there you have it. So, all of a sudden, we have a 12-month calendar. He split the difference. And then that worked pretty well. The only difference is that there was a number of seconds, maybe even a minute or so, that is off between an actual solar astronomical year and the Julian calendar. So that by the time Pope Gregory gets a hold of this in the 1500s, they can't calculate Easter properly because it keeps switching. And so, darn it, they have to make a new calendar that, like you said, is almost exactly the same as the Julian calendar, only that it accounts for Easter being in this very fixed position because it creates the cross-quarter dates of the equinoxes and the solstices as being fixed, and then also tells us that the other cross-quarter dates are fixed, like Beltane, Imbolc, 
Ostara and Safin. Also assuming that the that a year, every year is a fixed size, which I'm beginning to doubt. I'm wondering if the length of a year can be variable. But let's let's do the disclaimer here. As many people who follow, I don't really accept the dates here. Um, we've done work with Velikovsky and Anatoly Fomenko and a lot of others to try to back up the idea that in fact history is a lie agreed upon. But we know certainly that whatever ancient Rome was, that things like the doors from the Senate, who helped put the edict out for these calendars, ended up on the first basilica, St. John's Basilica in the Vatican. But let's logically just point something mm -hmm. out here. In my view, the screwing with calendars and the shuffling around of calendars and the idea that somehow by the time Vatican City or popes got it, that they couldn't know astronomy anymore, it logically has issues, and here's why. Yeah. Let's use the idea of Easter, first of all. So what they're gonna say, is we need to make the Easter annals or tables that will project Easter till the end of time. And so the change that they're making is administrative. It has really no reflection of the natural world if you think about it. And I think whether or not Julius Caesar existed in the time or as a man in the way we think he did, it's a similar thing going on. This is not about the natural world. This is about the need for people in charge to administer um, what they want to administer. So in the case of Easter, to come along and say, hey man, uh, Easter needs to be set and we got to do all this crazy math and make all these crazy tables to figure it out. It will be the first full moon after the vernal or spring equinox and then we'll just pull us to the nearest day of the sun. But here's the issue um, that I take umbrage with. As far back as we can look, every culture has known when the equinox is. They built things that align with the skies. They built things so the sun would shine through on given days. So it was no mystery to any civilization that mattered when these times happened. But by the time we get up to the Vatican, they're acting like we've forgotten everything we ever knew about astronomy. And we are told, get this, how they begin to re-educate themselves with the Jesuit order, the scientific kind of ninja wing, um, is they go back to Ptolemy. And as you mentioned, um, Egypt is cited as one of the places having the most accurate sky clocks. A lot of people always read the Chaldeans um, way the hell back, had some very good sky clock knowledge. But the, the, the issue is this. If you're going to be in the Vatican and go back to Ptolemy, that's a whole other model. There ain't no spinning globe. There ain't no nothing that resembles what NASA tells us today. But yet we are told that's how the Vatican brings us, brings itself up to speed and then starts making all these artificial dictates that equinoxes are this day and that. And it has no reflection on nature. Um, although I do agree with you that many of the Christian holy days or holidays or feasts do accurately reflect this day with a slight margin of error probably when the astronomical events are actually happening. You know, a lot of this sounds like mystery school business again, that they're taking the capability of really understanding the sky clock and filing it away from the general public. Okay, now this is exactly what we were talking about. So they, first of all, they created what's called an ecclesiastic moon. And this became really suspicious to me because why would they create a different moon date than the actual physical moon. And my question was, are they figuring out that there's a certain energy there or are they throwing the general public off, telling them that the energy is a couple of days before, or a couple of days after, instead of the actual high holiday? And I think that it's the latter. I think they're just throwing the scent off the trail just enough so that they can reserve what are called adrenochrome rituals. You guys familiar with this? So Phoenix, let me jump in here. Um, I think probably, 
we're going to have to push this conversation to hour two or nobody's going to get to hear any of this. Um, we're starting to get into areas that we know damn well will be censored, but I'm, I'm with you all day long. Um, even if you take something as simple as why would you announce an equinox when it's not an equinox, um, these ideas relate directly to alchemy and spagyrics and the idea of being able to exalt or leverage off the nat natural powers of this earth. But let's do this. I think we need to push the, the idea of a genochrome into our two because it would be a shame if this got removed and nobody could benefit from the things we're talking about. Fair enough. Um, and I hate to do it. I almost feel like I'm self-censoring, but okay. we, we will, we well, will no, come. Let's do self-censor because we do want as much of this information to be available as possible. So now check this out. Let me let me tie this back into spagyrics here really fast. When I'm working on the dates that I have actually calculated based on Sidereal, because I do not give any any care whatsoever to the Gregorian dates that it tells me. I am looking for like a number of things. Like for instance, if I'm working with nettles, there are two things that are really, well, three things that are really important to me. One, the moon sign. I have to ensure that the moon is actually in the constellation that is going to correspond to where I want the nettles to go. So if I'm providing nettles for nutrientization to get rid of headaches, I need the moon to be in the sign of Aries. And not just in the sign of Aries, but actually the moon that will actually be in front of the constellation of Aries so that as I'm looking at it in the night sky or during the daytime or whatever in my calculation, it's actually found from my perspective in the constellation of Aries. If I need it to go to, say, the thyroid, then I need it to be in Taurus. If I need it to go to the lungs, then in Gemini and so on and so forth. So that's the first thing that I have to take a look at. The second thing that I have to take a look at is the sun date. And knowing that nettles only grow during a certain time of the year is going to tell me and restrict whether I have fresh or dried material available to me. And that's why the sun is important. And the last thing is the ruling planet that corresponds to that herb. So nettles are like, you know, traditionally very martial. They have very anti-inflammatory uh, activity, antibacterial, antifungal activities, things like that. The silica is awesome. We're finding out that even Nettle has a lot of efficacy against uh, EBV group three, intensity level two, in the IDF reports that we're taking a look at, which further backs up its antiviral activity. And people even used to hit their kidneys with this to create mild uh, inflammation in early spring, like all throughout history, in order to get their lymphatic system working again after a long winter and so on and so forth, and it prevented a lot of diseases. So it's very martial and I have to take into account where Mars is and if it's in a good point or if it's retrograde or, you know, not in a good exaltation, because if it's ruling planet isn't in a good spot, then it's probably I should just postpone the work altogether and wait until it is. And so those are the three things that I always have to take into consideration when I'm really working on on any herb just preliminarily. Then there's a number of other things that are mentioned in Tim Wilkerson's Alchemy Astrology book that. I also do, but you know, those first three things are key. So this, this brings up some huge, huge questions. Um, it, it got me looking for the oldest sky atlas I could get my hands on. And I did get one from the 1600s and posted it. And also you have referred, uh, a sidereal astrologer to me, which will be on shortly. His name is Athen. And this, 
this, what I'm about to ask you is one of the conundrums that I've been trying to work through. Um, since we can look up at a constellation and we understand that since we're calling it a sky clock, a, a clock needs to have equal divisions to be actually working like a clock as we would expect. And yet so many of the constellations are less than or greater than 30 degrees, which does not give a clean division for 12 constellations. Um, and of course, people, we can draw the lines to um, a supposed old 10-month calendar that you mentioned all the way up to the Gregorian where there's 12 months. But it culminated when I got the 1600s map, or maybe it was 1500s, I've forgotten now, um, 16th century, I think it was. Um, and I started looking straight at the constellation of uh, Scorpio, Scorpius the scorpion. And uh, when I opened up, I went straight to Libra, the sign that precedes Scorpio. And to my astonishment, every other constellation had been drawn out and shaded. And I got to Libra and it was a line drawing and had like this bizarre cross hatching for the shading. It was almost like it was sitting there saying, stare at me. One of these things is not like the other. And I instantly recognized that Libra out of all the signs is the only thing that's not a living thing. But what had got me going in the first place was two stars that are currently the major stars in the sign of Libra called Zubin el Shanubi and Zubin el Shamali. And as I looked back to try to define them, I found that the definitions, and this is changing by the way, but I already had ideas about this from a long time ago. Um, those two words back in the Persian or whatever it was meant the Northern claw of the scorpion and the Southern claw of the scorpion. And yet now they are the main two uh, stars in Libra. Libra looks like it's jammed in and the scorpion's claws are all short and stubby. So that was a lot of wind out of me just there. But what I'm, what I'm getting at is how do you deal with looking up to ensure that say your moon is in Aries? How do you define the boundaries now? Um, which is one of the things I'm going to bring up with Athen because presumably each constellation would need to be 30 degrees. Are you with me so far? Oh yeah, I'm with you. And uh, reasonably, you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> I don't mean that with any disrespect. I just would say well, this, this because the signs do not need to be 30 degrees because we are not working. We already know we are not working with a circular model of elliptical orbit. I'm sure you guys have probably seen Nassim Haramein's video, and I don't know, you know, some people who are flat Earth, some people who are physicists and other things, they, they look at these things because it is still a theory, and they say, well, this it can't be like this because of this and this and this. But let me tell you, Nassim Haramein's model fits perfectly into the alchemical paradigm. And what I mean by that is that everything is spiraling in and spiraling out in a tube torus vortex that is reality. Some things are evolving, some things are devolving, and there is a consistent central channel of energy that is fueling it all that we would call the one mind or the universal creation. And according to Nassim Harmine's model, the sun itself is corkscrewing through the universe at extreme speeds of light around, again, the Milky Way galaxy, which itself is spiraling and doing its vortexing thing, which is all vortexing and funneling into the very same tube torus shape universe that many uh, modern physicists seem to think exists because it explains the multidimensional theory of the universe, both metaphysically and physically. It just like, like clicks really well. And this, 
before I even knew that these models existed, this was the way that I had envisioned things based on reading the Emerald Tablet. And uh, the Emerald Tablet is, you know, basically just a couple of rubrics long, like seven rubrics long that, you know, gives a perennial pattern of the universe and gives us the keys to understanding all astronomy, alchemy and magic, you know, or Kabbalah, I guess you could call it. So for me, the, that model makes a lot of sense. And with that being said, the sun itself is vortexing. The planets are behind the sun in relative distance and vortexing around and trying to follow the sun due to the gravitational pull. Now, this also explains how gravity works and why gravity works and how it relates to electromagnetism and explains for the bend in time-space curvature. So this model, I think, is actually the, the only model from a modern perspective that we can really consider because we, I mean, reasonably, I've done the math. Even ancient Greeks before Ptolemy did the math, we know that if the planet is not mostly like uh, it might be egg shaped, in fact, but uh, and that's based on like if you just take a look at the magnetic discharge of our planet, like just take a look at any of the magnetic discharge photos that we have, you'll see a huge coronal discharge right in uh, at the top near the North Pole. It's just like enormous. Okay. And that's what creates the Northern Lights and other things, you know, uh, and it can extend really large if there are solar flares or other things like this. But if you take a look at that, it would suggest that at times the physicality of the planet does get pushed to a slight egg shape. And again, like imagine that you're a hurling ball of mass flying through the universe. You would definitely have a little bit of like, oh, shit, I'm pulling behind a little bit. You know what I mean? It's there's going to be a little bit of pull behind you. So as far as I can tell, everything that we have, both common sense wise, logistically, mathematically, and metaphysically as well, so that it checks out in the astral, because the astral and the physical match perfectly if it's a perennial truth. And I can demonstrate that with laboratory work and with, you know, what we would call philosophic logic, which says, like we were talking about earlier, all things are composed of sulfur, mercury, and salt. Everything. It doesn't matter whether it's a thought, whether it's a rock, whether it's a mineral, whether it's a metal or an herb or whatever, everything has sulfur, mercury, and salt. And each of those things can be broken down elementally, or they can be broken down into their own sulfur, mercury, and salt. So there's a sulfur of sulfur, a mercury of sulfur, a salt of sulfur. There's a mercury of mercury, a sulfur of mercury, and a salt of mercury, and so on and so forth, because the principles are holographic and fractal, as is the nature of the universe. Or that which is above is as that which is below, and that which is below is as that which is above for the perpetuation of the one thing. So realistically, when we're talking astronomy, the way that the sun is moving and the way that we're moving and the way that the stars are also moving in relationship to the sun, because they themselves are also in movement. It's not like we, we don't have a static universe. Stars aren't just sitting still. We're all moving, but we're moving in perpetual progression together. Now, not all cosmos or galaxies are going to be moving at the same speed. Everything has a different speed. And this is where our concept, I think, today of light speed, we don't really have the ability to take a look at the relative speed of light from that planet. All we can do is observe from our planet. So we have to remember that whatever we're perceiving is only relative to us. It's not an objective truth to other planets. Like, for instance, if we were to go to Mars, the, the astronomy that we'd have to account for, and even the, the degrees of the signs, 
and which planets are impacting us at what times and which planets could go retrograde are going to be entirely different, of course. And the same thing sits here with Earth is that based on our position, the way that we rotate creates, like you were talking about, uh, I can't ever pronounce it very well, uh, the traditional names, but I know them as their names as Alpha Libre and Beta Libre. Right. Subin uh, El Shanubi and Subin El Shamali. Yep. There you go, man. You worked on those pronunciations, man. Props. So with that being said, those stars do appear like they're in Libra because it's not until after the constellation of Scorpio, you know, like after Libra that you get to the constellation of Scorpio and those stars are nowhere near where Scorpio is. They're like way far away. So you're entirely right about all of that. And also the other thing that Athen brings up is that and this was brought up by the International Astronomical Union, too, who has, you know, probably the most authoritative data and, you know, research and compiled, uh, you know, just resources available to them today and scholars who are constantly working on this. But they have decided that the 13th sign of Ophiuchus really needs to be accounted for because the sun and all of the planets do show up in Ophiuchus. And they do definitely have a very clear quality. And since I've accounted for that in my lab work for maybe about the last year and a half, that's definitely changed the way that my, my lab work works. And the way that I've accounted for that is Ophiuchus now works with cellular and DNA data, which was something that formerly in medical astrology, there was no account for cellular data. There was no account for DNA data. Even Aquarius, they didn't really know exactly what to do with. They just said it rules over the ankles and the wrists and you know, it does something. And, you know, uh, I think it was Judy Hall in recent days that said it deals with the quote unquote mysterious electrical system of the body. And uh, now what I have shown is that it actually deals very heavily with the endocrine system, you know, not just the electrical system. It's like electrical and nervous system because it deals with the DC voltage that is generated through sunlight uh, hitting our skin and through different waveforms hitting our skin. And so, that's really the role of Aquarius. But then Ophiuchus really does, and we've confirmed this with IDF data, correspond to the DNA and the cellular thing as I proposed. So as far as I'm concerned, the, the IDF is detecting the intrinsic data field of Ophiuchus and the intrinsic data field of Libra and Scorpio and so on and so forth uh, have slightly remodeled themselves in the scope of new information. Realistically, you know, I feel solid with IDF technology in a way that... <laughs> When I'm asking this, it's not like, for instance, if I ask, uh, does Libra do this and Libra doesn't have that kind of action, it will come back with something that says no data. If we ask something and it gives us back data and we'll grade that data on a scale of accuracy between zero to 100, and then we can ask yes, no questions to dial things in from there, then I kind of feel like, okay, we, we've got something. We're kind of using like an oracle to confirm the suspicions of what's going on. So when you say prove things for yourself, that was my own method for proving what the International Astronomical Union data and what Athen has on his program at masteringthezodiac.com. So anyways. So let me just step in here real quick. This what What we just did here is one of the big stumbling blocks online because we have a couple camps that are very married to the models of our existence. Some tend towards the, the the NASA model, some tends towards flat. But I think what's critically important here is for all these camps to come together and try to learn from each other. And you're putting out real experiential data. So, I mean, just to put a fine point on this before we move on, 
So do you accept the general boundaries of constellations as usable as typical astrology would put them forward, or would it be better described as sidereal, or how how would you say the correct boundaries of okay. constellations? How, how can people know what, what you would assume are the correct boundaries? Okay, cool. Yeah. So let me tell you what, what just led to this really fast was in 2015, I was doing medical uh, astrology research programs. So people would sign up uh, with me. I'd run their medical astrology and based on their medical astrology, I'd formulate eight custom spagyrics for them for that month and then send it off to them. And they were, you know, like 13 month clients, just like most of my initial research clients are because I like to track them throughout an entire lunar year. So with that being said, I kept running into discrepancies where uh, about maybe 60% of the time, and I was using sidereal astrology at the time. I was using Vedic astrology at the time, though. So it's a, a form of sidereal, but it uses the equal 12 um, constellations and 12 houses and 30 degrees for each one to make a perfect circle, okay? And what I kept finding was that there were discrepancies, 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 and I couldn't put it together until I watched that Nassim Haramain video. And that's where I said, you know what, there's no way in my right mind that I should be trying to fit these stars into a circle. I already know that they're not 360 degrees. Our orbit is elliptical. I already know that. Like, it's obvious, actually, because I can see that in the sky. And so... With that being said, I struggled for a long time trying to create a new zodiac that was based on a spiral, which actually shows a certain length of time based on how far out the spiral goes and then showing the different degrees. But it was very, very complicated and the mathematics were very hard and I couldn't program it very well because I'm not a very good programmer. I try, but I'm not a very good programmer. Let me try to build a bridge real quick. For all the people who have been working on the assumptions that the world is flat, a lot of those models include spiral ideas. So let's build a bridge here. Let's get cool. together. You've got groups of people all aiming for the same result. How do we find some accurate truth in this world? Um, and I'm saying this, Phoenix, because I know the result. Uh, online, it has been cut such divided camps that I think it's critical to put everyone's ideas on the table and try to come to an agreement. But instantly, when you started to talk about the spirals, uh, that corresponds directly with a lot of one of the other camps. So I think that's a common ground where we can begin to observe what each other are up to. Well, I think that's rad, actually. If they have some mathematics and like a theory that, you know, um, that anybody would like to show me, I would like, because for me, really, let me just put it like this. I could care less if the world is round or if the world is flat. It doesn't matter because I can still calculate where the stars are from my position, regardless of my position. And as far as I can tell, whether I sail south or whether I fly south, which, you know, I have been south of the equator. I have been on that flight. I do know what it looks like from the air. I have seen the curvature of the earth. But regardless of all of that, let me just say that um, maybe we're just, it's like it's flat and then there's a dome over the top of us or a firmament, the way that we talked about. I don't think that that's true because I know enough about inner earth theory. And so we would have to be talking about, and I've also astral journeyed there. And so I've had like personal experiences in the psychic realm under the earth. And those aren't just imaginations because they're corroborated by thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of other individuals who are very highly trained and adept in their own psychic faculties. So for me, I just would have to say that I'm very open to anything. It just takes some data to show me what's going on and how deep maybe the, the lower firmament is and how deep the oceans go. 
if we're not a globe. Otherwise, based on what I can see, because of the centrifugal motion of the Earth explaining for the account of days, it does seem as if, and along with the atmospheric pressure that we would have, not just through centrifugal motion, it does seem like we would have to be circular, not necessarily flat. But I could, I have read many of the arguments. Uh, some of them seem to be very valid arguments, but just mathematically, they don't check out. So like, you know, if you think about it, it's like, oh yeah, that could make sense. But then, you know, when you go to do the math, then that's a different thing. And then when you go psychically to check in the astral to make sure that it's also a truth and then bring that into the laboratory to enact the truth. Like for instance, here's what I do in the laboratory. Okay. Somebody says, they say, Hey, fee spirit can dissolve ego. I say, okay, cool. Now in my language, Spirit is a universal and holographic principle. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about the universal spirit or whether we're talking about vegetable spirit. Everything that is a spirit corresponds to that archetype. So I say, okay, cool. I've got vegetable spirit. Now I got to take some subject to see if this is going to extract his ego. So I take an herb, right? Let's say I take lemon balm. I stick that lemon balm in a flask and I pour my spirit over that lemon balm, over that individual. And what ends up coming out is actually all of his soul which is to say the, the sulfur portion, particularly the fixed sulfur portion, but also any volatile oils, which we would call the higher soul or the volatile soul. And so I can say, yeah, man, this did. It extracted actually a little bit of the higher soul, but it definitely extracted the ego. So does spirit dissolve ego? Yes, it does. Okay. I just proved something in the astral that is also true in the physical by utilizing its universal holographic and telescopic archetype. This is kind of the way that a philosopher in ages past would have proved something, or even the scriptures. This is why Paracelsus didn't agree with the scriptures the way that they were written and said they must have been altered because he went through the scriptures and used it as a manual for lab work for the creation of the philosophic stone because the story of Jesus or the story of Mithras or the story of all these others follows the process of creating the philosophic stone. And so they can be alchemically decrypted. And all you have to do is follow the allegories, decrypt them into their actual archetypes, follow the process. If the process doesn't work, you need to take the process, change it, find out what does work, and then rewrite the story accordingly. And that's how we can actually become one and reunite with universal and perennial principles. So I'm, I'm glad you said all that. Um, I think it's critically important. One of the most critically important things that I think will probably come out of this episode is people being faced with a decision um, that the things I just heard don't fit the model that I accept. So the question becomes, can the minds meet in the middle and join when they're clearly engaged in working to the same end? They want to know something real about this world. Um, and I think that's very, very important. But Phoenix, have you ever seen... Um, like I, I went and saw petroglyphs um, and I went to a place called Chaco Canyon where the dagger of light is going into a spiral. Clearly the spiral ideas are there. And if you look at enough petroglyphs, um, it starts to reflect what I see coming from people who are trying to model out a flat plane of existence. And what you just explained um, on a more orbiting model, um, the idea of things moving in spirals. Um, do you have any any comment on those petroglyphs where you'll notice that sometimes the spiral is to the right and sometimes they're to the left? Some people have kind of corresponded it with what portion of the year in when you start to think about maybe the furthest extent of the sun in June or the lowest extent of the sun in December. Did you follow me? 
Oh yeah, I'm totally following you. And I would say it extends so far beyond that. It's like every culture has a, it doesn't matter whether you're taking a look at a pentagram, taking a look at a triskel, taking a look at the horns of Odin, taking a look at uh, the swastika, taking a look at any of those solar signs, they are all showing vortexing patterns. And even when you drain water, water again corresponds to the astral realm. It is the physical manifestation of the astral realm. And so when we drain water, when water flows, it also vortexes. Right. And so to me, these kinds of universal and perennial truths kind of show themselves uh, again. And remind, let, why, am, why do I keep bringing up the astral? Why is the astral important? Why maybe is the mental or spiritual not important in this? Let me tell you why. Because the astral is actually an alchemical philosophy that originated with Paracelsus that says this is star energy. Astra means star in Latin. So astral is the star energy. And he says that that is the second firmament of our planet, is the astral firmament. And by this, he elaborates and says that thoughts go on to create uh, a firmament all of their own. And, and in this, it corresponds to and relates and even shapes our physical plane. And so... With that being said, the stars themselves are sending energy light to us all the time, whether you're perceiving it or not, just because, you know, our sun is at a greater light and our eyes are not as sensitive or whatever, but we can, we can pick it up with photos. You know, it's really important to realize that all of that light is actually hitting your eyes, that it's hitting your skin and that it's creating different electrochemical reactions inside of your nervous and endocrine system and otherwise, and impacting us in ways beyond what modern science is willing to admit. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the critical points that comes up a lot is is the idea that people have observed that in the United States, if you put water down a drain, it goes down clockwise. I, I hope I don't have this backwards. If you go to Australia, um, it goes down counterclockwise. And again, we're getting back into the vortex ideas that you're talking about and also the idea of these spirals that show up in so many places. Well, but, now this goes back into the tube torus theory that I was just talking about. Right. If the planet is globular, the way that I would ex imagine that it is, because it itself is acting just like the universe around it, which itself is vortexing. So the planet itself, I think, has an energy field that is vortexing through the central column of the planet and out through the North Pole and down through the South Pole. The fact that there's a magnetic pole that matches that exact same theory and a magnetic displacement that matches that exact same theory and that the magnetic relates to water and water relates to the astral, all these things to me from an alchemical perspective would be, quote unquote, philosophic proof enough that I have demonstrated that. And therein lies the challenge. Can people meet in the middle and try to learn from each other, uh, clearly heading for the same idea of what is reality? What, what truth can we find about this place? But I think that does bring the first hour of episode 161 to a close. Jason, anything you want to add in before we wrap up and prep for hour two? You know, I'm looking online and it seems to be a myth that the water spins differently depending upon the hemisphere. Is that true? Because I actually think I have direct observation um, because I asked someone who I was talking to on the phone when I was in the Marine Corps. I'd be surprised to learn that's true, but I guess if that's not right, I need to be corrected. But again, it shows. I was in South America, and I can tell you that it definitely spins differently than it does here. Yeah, that's I'm under the impression. So, you know, but who knows what people are writing online? I'm seeing mixed things. Yeah, who knows what people write online? My first um, experience says differently. Well, I was on the phone once when I was uh, in Okinawa with a friend who was much 
further away than I was, and we actually talked about it. That's not firsthand observation, but it was my attempt to verify it. If Phoenix has witnessed it, um, then I guess we need to take a closer look and just make sure we're all right. Yeah, now um, this is gravity fed, okay? So this is gravity fed natural vortex. This is not flushing a toilet, okay? A toilet is going to be something different. So I think that's where the false reads are coming from because mm -hmm. toilet dynamics are a flushed force dynamic. Right. That is not going to be the same as letting water naturally vortex or flow by gravity. Well, it'll give something in the forums for people to vet out and talk about and try to confirm one way or the other. Um, I'm going to bring the first hour of episode 161 to a close. Uh, I hope everyone will join us at crow777radio.com. Uh, we're going to have to clip out a little bit of what we did in the first hour that has to do with blood and the human consumption of blood, because almost certainly it will have this episode removed. So if you show up in the free speech zone, uh, we're going to actually open up with the ideas that Phoenix was starting to elaborate on here in a place where we don't have to be accused of talking about things that we're not allowed to talk about, which I don't accept. Anyhow, hope to see you all over at crow777radio.com for hour two. Cheers.